Well, good morning and happy new year. Glad that you are with us. We are continuing our study in the book of Ephesians. Uh, We've been in the book of Ephesians since uh, the fall, and we're continuing our study this morning. Some years ago, someone showed me the game Four Picks, One Word. Have you heard of this game? It's a game that you could play on your cell phone, and for some reason, I found this game quite enjoyable. The way the game works is you're shown four pictures, and you have to identify one word that relates them all together. You have to find a common theme. So, for instance, you might be shown a picture of a dog, a tree, a dessert bar, and a person yelling. Now, how do those relate? That's right. Viewer number 17 got it. Bark. Good guess. Bark. It's bark. Yes. Well, so today um, we're going to talk about Christian marriage, and we're going to be talking about this next week as well. The focus of today is just simply to cover the big ideas, and Pastor Tracy will be speaking in more detail next week. As you can see this morning, we have two sections of Scripture readings, and it's important that we see that they are joined together. The first section has to do with life together as a church community, and then the second has to do with married life. And from, and from them, we can see that what, what we get are four pictures that emerge, sorry, that one theme emerges. We get four pictures with one theme. You see, too often one picture is focused on in in these passages at the expense of the others, and the overall theme is lost. And the consequences, when we lose sight of how the pictures relate uh, relate together, uh, has a bad effect on the quality of life in the church and in marriages. Most especially, Christian marriage is separated from the life of the church community. So along the way, as we go through these passages, we want to make sure that we don't lose sight of the overall picture that Paul is presenting here. We don't want to lose sight of the theme that brings them all together. But before we get into it, let's go to the the Lord with a word of prayer. Father, we want to thank you that your word instructs us on all things related to life and godliness, as our brother prayed earlier. Would you, by your Holy Spirit, make the teaching of the Apostle here real and powerful for us in our church community and in our families? Would you do this in Jesus' name? Amen. On a rainy night, a couple sat on the opposite ends of the couch. Each clenched their face with their hands. They just had that same fight yet again. They were stuck. No one knew the troubles they were having. This wasn't the marriage that they hoped for. Being single was in many ways easier. But who could they turn to at this point? They were married, but they were lonely. How do you even begin to open up about your marriage? At the same time, across town, a single man watches the rain from his bedroom window. He was fighting hard against the feelings of loneliness he'd been feeling in church. Most of his friends from church were married, and some even had children. Did he have to be married to have a place in the church? If I were just married, he thinks, 
life would be easier. What I described for you is what happens when we divorce our marital status from the communal life of the church. Both married and single people are united to one another in one church body, yet too often the church feels like it's divided between a church of singles and a church of married people. A married couple can isolate itself from the life of the church, and single people can isolate themselves as well, especially if the church is made up of many families. Christian marriage is not just a union of a single man and a single woman like two atoms bonded together. Christian marriage is part of the greater compound of the Christian community. There is a unity of the Spirit among all believers, regardless of their marital status. And that's the first picture I want you to see from our passage. One of the central themes of the book of Ephesians is unity for the church body. Chapter 2, Paul says the church is like it, um, ha, there was a dividing wall that had been between Jews and Gentiles, and in Christ, that wall was torn down. In Christ, the whole structure is being joined together that grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In chapter 4, Paul says this, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And later on in the same chapter, he says that the church is a body under the headship of Christ, where they are joined join and held together. And the specific commands Paul gives from chapters 4 to 6 are all meant to reinforce and strengthen the unity that all believers share in the Spirit, both married and single. We are to speak the truth to one another in love. Be kind to one another. Forgive each other as Christ forgave you. And in verses 15 to 21, in these set of verses, Paul continues this theme on how believers should act towards each other in the unity of the Spirit. Well, then how does this tie to Christian marriage? If you were to translate verses 21 and 22 literally, it would sound something like this. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives to your own husbands as to the Lord. Did you catch that? The word submit is actually not in that verse. It's assumed to be carried over from the previous verse. And Paul does the same thing again in verse 24. In other words, where most of our Bible translations put a break in Paul's line of thought and start a new section, we see that all these verses belong together. What Paul will say about Christian marriage stems from his teaching on the communal life of the church. Married life is part of church life. In verse 18, Paul gives the entire community a command. Be filled with the Spirit. And he's going to show us how to do that in verses 19 to 21. And one of those ways jumpstarts his discussion into Christian marriage. But before we get there, I want to ask you a question. What might the quality of our marriages be like if they weren't divorced from the body of Christ? What would our marriages be like if we can draw on others in the church for help and support and not just try to uphold our marriage in the strength of our own wisdom? Or what might the experience of singleness be like if individuals saw themselves as truly joined to other members, including families in the church body? You see, in the body of Christ, 
all of us share in each other's lives. We are called to help each other, all of us to be better disciples of Christ, whether you are married or not. While I was single, especially in college and in seminary, the kindness extended to me from couples and families helped me grow as a disciple of Christ in ways that I could have never grown on my own. When Jessica and I were expecting our firstborn, uh, we were part of a prayer group, and it was a single woman who prayed for us fervently as we expected our firstborn. You see, looking back, married people helped me while I was single, and single people have been an encouragement to us while we have been married. And many of you are already doing this kind of thing, singles getting together with married people. And that is a wonderful thing because it helps the church body grow in total unity. But this is an area that we, I think all of us can pay more attention to. We all belong each to one another. And too often we have ministries that are siloed off from mutually supporting each other. Well, Paul's focus here for the total community is to be filled with the Spirit. Now, for some reason, when we talk about filling with the Spirit, we think of things like speaking in tongues, receiving visions, or prophesying. And certainly the Holy Spirit does that, especially as we have it in the book of Acts, as, as, as we see there. But let's not limit the Spirit's activity to extraordinary things. Paul's command, be filled with the Spirit, gives the sense that we are to be continually filled with the Spirit. And just as the temple in the Old Testament was filled with God's personal presence, so God fills every believer and the entire church body. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And the result of the Spirit's filling is the ability to walk carefully and wisely. Do you see how this is going to lead to a discussion on marriage? We are to walk carefully and wisely. The Holy Spirit is like a master teacher working within us to expand our minds, to grow our wills, so that we can mature in our knowledge of Jesus Christ, so that he can teach us how to act well towards others in every circumstance. The Holy Spirit is in the business of teaching us how to live well, how to live wisely according to God's, God's law. And in married life, this is especially important because we have to act keeping not only our own interests in mind, but the interests of our family members as well. If your spouse brings up a past offense, it's very easy to respond by keeping your own reputation in mind. It's very difficult to know how to respond, keeping the unity of your marriage in mind. How does a long-term couple prevent their marriage from getting cold and stale from the ups and downs in life? That takes the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. We need to be continually filled by the Spirit to keep the vibrant unity of our relationships. Well, how do we get that? Well, Paul lays out five ways in verses 19 to 21 and those are all the part of participles he lists there. Uh, speaking to one another, singing, giving thanks. And that very last one listed there says, submitting to one another out of reverence to Christ. That shows us our second picture. There is a mutuality in the spirit where we are submitting to one another. Under the authority of Jesus Christ, Christians are to submit one to another. 
as we submit to one another, God's Spirit fills us with his power and influence to maintain our unity amidst our, our diversity. So what does it look like to submit? It means to be other-centered, to put ourselves in, servant, in service under the, other, uh, under the will of others, to help others get ahead, to see the sorrows and joys of others as our very own. It's easy to miss the radical teaching that Paul is giving us here. Jesus Christ is raised to the highest place over every single name, over every single authority, over every single power, both now and forever. And all Christians, whether they are men, whether they are women, whether they are children, whether they are married or not, by grace, through faith, are joined to him in that high status. He is the head and we as the body. And so in Christ, in one sense, we are not subject to anyone or anything in the past, now, or in the future. But what are we supposed to do with this high status? We're to use it to serve others, to be subject to others, to be other-centered. Think about other people in your everyday decisions. Act with a consciousness that is attuned to the wishes and needs of others, even above your own even at the expense of your own life. On a Thursday night 2,000 years ago in Israel, right before one Passover feast, we would have found the one who calls all things into existence and, to, and the one to whom all things give an account, the one who has all authority, like a slave scrubbing dirt and dung off the feet of his students to get ready for Passover. His disciples should have washed his feet because Jesus is the master. But Jesus makes himself the servant instead. Jesus is the head with all authority, yet he serves the body. And the act of serving is made honorable. Why? Because the master does it. Out of reverence for God's will, he denied himself and served others. Do you see how submitting to one another would lead to a discussion on marriage? Now, before we get there, I want to say that when we talk about mutual submission out of reverence for Christ, it's here that I think that the wider culture has a problem with the Christian teaching on marriage, not necessarily what it says specifically to women or to men. You see, because all Christians, men and women, are to submit to each other under Christ's lordship. That's a very hard teaching. Paul will enter into his, into his discussion on Christian marriage, excuse me, only after we come to grips with the reality that our lives are not about us, it's about the rule of Christ. It's not what is valued in our culture. That's not what's valued in our culture. You see, we believe as Christians, at the expense of our own freedom, our life springs from Christ's will and not our own. The culture wants unity, but it's found only under Christ's authority. The culture values service to others, but not so seriously enough where you have to deny yourself or forego your wishes, especially if you've been wrong before. But to be a disciple of Jesus means our wills are not our own anymore, and we can direct to serve the good of our neighbors, even our enemies. 
That's the essence of the Christian life. So when Paul talks about what it means to be married as a Christian couple, it's going to be all the more difficult. So maybe you're saying, you know, I don't want to live in the power of my resources anymore, especially when it comes to marriage. Well, this is what Paul is going to show us how to do in the third picture, where he talks about the responsibility of spouses. That's what we see here in verses 22 to 33. This is the longest section uh, of teaching on Christian marriage in the New Testament. And you'll notice that the bulk of it is directed to the husband's. But let's start where Paul starts, and that is his instructions to wives. He says, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. We just saw that all Christians are people who live in submission to the Lordship of Christ. And here, wives are to order their lives under the leadership of the husband. The wife uses her agency and her freedom to act in ways that allow the husband to fulfill his responsibility as the leader in the home. She supports him, and like every Christian, she practices self-denial to fulfill her calling as wife. Now, notice the phrase that Paul adds there. He says, they're to do this as to the Lord. It means that the wife understands that her submitting is her act of service to Jesus Christ in her marriage. But she is never free to act contrary to God's will, even if her husband asks her to do so because Jesus Christ is the Lord of her life. Now, based on Paul's words here, you see that he doesn't instruct husbands to submit to their wives in the same way he doesn't instruct parents to submit to children or employers to employees. Now, why is that? Is it because the wife is lesser than the husband? Well, we know from the opening chapter of the Bible that both men and women are made in God's image, that in Christ, both men and women are one. And as we've seen in the book of Ephesians so far, everything that Paul has written applies equally to wives as to husbands. It applies to all the saints. The equality of men and women in Scripture is clear. So why does Paul talk about the role of wives in this way? In short, it's because of the story of Adam and Eve and the foundation that it plays in understanding Christian marriage. In verse 31, he quotes from the story, and ultimately this story about Adam and Eve relates to Christ's uh, love for the church. It's not just a par- it's just not a picture for human marriage. Adam and Eve are equal, but they complement each other as man and woman. And as one scholar pointed out, Adam alone is given the command not to eat from the tree. God only asks Adam, not Eve, if he broke the command. Adam has a special responsibility for his wife before God. But when God's command is violated, Adam blames Eve for his disobedience. And their one flesh union, which he spoke so poetically of uh, in the early part of Genesis, is now broken. And unity, as we've seen, is one of the central themes in Ephesians. And it comes up again here. The two shall become one flesh. Christian marriage is to reflect a restored unity that was lost at the fall. It's true that the husband is the head of the wife, but Paul's emphasis is the unity of marriage and the responsibility of each spouse to perform his or her her duties to achieve that unity. 
It's not about being the head. It's not about being the body. It's about being one living body together. And if you keep that in mind, then what Paul says in verse 24, wives should submit in everything to their husbands, it makes a lot of sense. Well, why? Well, how can there be unity in a marriage that reflects Christ in the church if significant spheres of life are not shared? If one spouse hides what is done with finances, for instance, how will that affect the marriage? Or if one spouse knows something about one of the children and keeps it from the other, even that can cause problems. So Paul is saying to wives, the normal way that it should go is to bring all the spheres of your life under your husband's leadership, not trying to control or not trying to dominate. You are one flesh after all. And in a moment, you're going to see why that's important for husbands. In no way is Paul condoning wives to be bossed around or abused by their husbands emotionally, physically, or spiritually. The wife is not the servant of her husband to, to fulfill his wishes. Now, if this behavior is going on in your marriage, whether you're a husband or a wife, please don't go at it alone. Please reach out for help. Please talk to me or Pastor Tracy or one of the elders. Talk to people in your small group. Now, let's look at what Paul says to husbands. A husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. He is to love her. He's even to give up his own life for her. Now, authority ordinarily means a person can do what they want, but not in Christian marriage. It's quite the opposite. The husband is to use his authority totally in service for his bride. He doesn't just take into consideration the interests of his wife, but makes her interests his own, and in fact, puts them above his own. You see, Paul's idea of headship is very different than what you would have expected uh, in his day. You see, because to be the head meant that you were in a position of significance and that others would sacrifice themselves for you, for you to keep your position because you were honored, you were more needed. So, for instance, soldiers would sacrifice themselves for their general. A citizen would sacrifice himself for the head of state. And naturally, you would sacrifice any limb before you would sacrifice your own head. But Paul is saying in Christ, the head of the marriage should sacrifice for the good of the wife. Biblical scholar Michelle Lee Barnwell says it well. Paul is turning headship on its head. The husband submits to Christ. He goes to him for everything he needs to fulfill his role as a husband. He practices self-denial as the head of the wife as she submits to him in all spheres of of her life. He loves her as his own body, and he prioritizes her well-being in his daily decisions. Now, this is where I think keeping in mind the previous pictures is really important because too often in discussions in Christian marriage, uh, we get hung up on things like, well, who should handle the finances? It's an important question. Or who should, um, who should work outside the home? Or who should do the chores? Or who should be with the children? Is that the role of a husband or a wife? You see, we have to keep in mind that I think Paul's overall point is unity. 
Focus on how you can bring unity towards your spouse. The husband is the head, and he uses his headship for the good of his wife. And the wife is the body, and she is to be united to her husband under his leadership. And in that unity, we see the beauty of marriage. Think about any marriage that you've seen, and you've said, that's a beautiful marriage. What that usually means is that you saw a unity between the couple that was truly beautiful. And I think that's what Paul's talking about here. Now, there's more to say for the roles of husbands and wives, and next week we'll take, look, uh, take a look at that in more detail. But at this point, some of you are wondering, who's the spouse he's describing? You may be thinking, but not saying aloud, of course, that's not my husband. That's not my wife. Well, if you and your husband are committed to working on your marriage as followers of Christ, then there is great hope for you. By his spirit, he can work in you exactly what you need to unify your marriage under his lordship. You are 100% responsible for your half of the marriage. Now, I know what you're thinking, but it's their fault. That may be true, but we can't control what others do. And because marriage is a one flesh union, the good news is that many times if you act differently, the other spouse will act differently as well. So how do you go about acting differently when you feel stuck? This is the fourth picture we have to keep in mind. It's looking at the supremacy of Christ's love. When Paul describes Christ's love for the church, he is talking about what he has done for all believers. He is absolutely supreme and the final say over everything, and that is wonderful news. Because that time you criticized the character of your spouse, or that time you broke your promise, or, that t- or the times that you keep playing that failure in your head again and again, like an ocean tide over riding on sand, Christ has taken that away. Christ does not see you through the brokenness you've caused in your marriage or in your life. He sees you as his own. And as you expose to his light those troubled spots in your marriage, you will see what Christ has done for you. And you will see that he has forgiven you. And once you know that you have been forgiven, you can then offer it to other people. You yourself will know that you have fallen short in your calling before God, and you yourself can ask for forgiveness for your own sins. And when that happens, when that posture of submission to Christ takes place, something inside of us starts to change. Whether it was coldness towards your spouse or to another, there is now room for something else. Something you didn't think you had any more room for. And that's compassion and empathy. You start to think, Christ died for them too. For all their struggles. For all their sins. Against me and against others. He forgives their wrongs against me just as much as Christ has forgiven uh, my wrongs against him. Christ has removed the barriers in my relationship to him so Christ can remove the barriers between me and my spouse. And if you are able to, because Christ has forgiven your sins, 
you are free to ask for the forgiveness of another person, putting the matter entirely in God's hands for the outcome. As hard as it would be, the truth is that your identity in Christ does not shake even one inch if your spouse doesn't respond to the w- in the way that you'd hope. You can still serve or sacrifice for them as to the Lord. Because your marriage is part of the body of Christ. It's that important. And if you have not done so and you need to do so, reach out to help from others. Whether you are married or you live alone, don't go at it alone. Because all our lives are meant to be under Christ's lordship. So, so far we've seen the unity of the spirit, the mutuality of the members, the responsibility of the spouses, the supremacy of Christ, and the one theme that unites all these things that Paul is talking about is restoration. The restoration of all things under Christ. Remember Paul's thesis statement at the, begin, at the beginning of this letter? He says in chapter 122 that the Father is putting all things under Christ's feet and has given Christ to be head over all things in heaven and on earth. You know, that couple that I described in the beginning of the sermon, uh, Jessica and I have been there before. And there has been times in the past that we've had to talk to other couples, that we've had to ask for help. And why is that? Well, because the supremacy of Christ is that important. The work of Christ in our marriage is that important. You see, everything, everything is to be united under the lordship of Christ, including marriage. Your marriage is part of God's cosmic agenda in Christ. So whether you're single or whether you're married, let us all work together to order our lives under the lordship of Christ in the various vocations he's called us to. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we know that all your plans for us are good in Jesus Christ. And we thank you that in him, he makes us the kind of people uh, who can be married well, who can live in singleness well, so that all of us together can live as one body under your gracious lordship. Oh Lord, would you help everyone in this church body to live out their callings, Would you give each person the grace that they need to do so faithfully? For those who are struggling either in singleness or in marriage, would you please use this body to help and serve so that all of us can be nurtured and developed and fully formed into the people you have called us to be. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.